Amen. I, I, I do love that. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you. We come to the great God of the universe. Oh, grant us to be amazed again. Forgive us, forgive me, that we have this small view of God. There's a great God of wonders. Creation is glorious, but redemption is even more glorious in and through your Son. Bless us now, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. And if you have the Church Bible, you might like to turn to page 274. A little word of explanation. Those who are regular, regularly attend here, will know that whilst I've been preaching on Sunday mornings, we'll be going through 1 Samuel. And we've arrived providentially at chapter 8. Now, some will say, well, Colin, in case you don't know it, it's Christmas. Well, I do know it, um, but strangely, as I trust we'll see, there's a connection between 1 Samuel 8 and the Christmas story. You'll say, well, that sounds to me like a quantum leap. Well, if I said to you, as a little title, the search for a king, you might think, hmm, all right then. Isn't part of the Christmas story? A search, the search for a king, wise men and so on, and who is this born in, where's the king of the Jews and all that. There's a kingship um, aspect to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's that kingship link I think we can make with 1 Samuel chapter 8. Well, the context of 1, chapter, one Samuel chapter 8 is the search or the need for a king. Now, the context, for those who are not too familiar with it, um, the Israel have been battling with the Philistines, and there have been problems, they've been losing, they've been winning, they've been losing, they've been winning. And the latest thing in chapter 7 is where the Philistines have come again against the people of God, and the people have cried unto Samuel to cry unto the Lord to have mercy upon them. And God has had mercy, all right? We're told in verse 10, and as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, but the Lord thundered, the great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and, they, and discomforted them, and they were smitten for Israel, and the men of Israel went out of Mopah and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they all came to Bethlehem. And they recovered the cities that had been previously um, captured by the Philistines. Now, that's the context. Now, you'd think, having that context, that people now would say, this is wonderful. Our God is great. Without our involvement, initially, he just slams them, blasts them. Our God is great. And therefore... Let's stick with him. Now, wouldn't you think that's reasonable? Wouldn't you think it's reasonable for having had this great victory by God, God, Yahweh, delivered them, they've got this great victory, you'd think, right, that's, he has proved himself again. So let's stay with him. Now we're less happy with this situation. But 
you cannot believe it. Well, you can, because if you know the history thus far, you can believe it. So we read in verse 1, And it came to pass when Samuel was old. When I read this, I said, yeah, I know the feeling, as some of you do. And it came to pass when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. Remember the word judges, it's not like in a um, judicial way, uh, law and all that kind of stuff as we think of today. They were judges as in the book of Judges. They were deliverers, saviors with a small s. And Samuel was one of the last of the judges in that sense. So he makes his sons judges. Big mistake. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that certain things were hereditary, i.e., particularly, the priesthood. The priesthood, God said, the Levites are to be priests, and only the Levites. And so that was handed down father, 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 son. And sadly, we know that in Samuel, the priest was Eli, and he handed down to his two sons, and they were bad eggs and bad boys and stuff like that. But there was no hereditary regarding the office of a prophet. So Samuel didn't have to appoint his sons to be prophets after him, as it were, or hold that office. There was no hereditary business here. He just chose to make his sons judges. One was Joel, one was Abiah. And sadly, verse 3 says, and his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after filthy lucre. All right, that's the word. Took bribes bribes and perverted judgment. How sad is that? Here's this godly man, Samuel, and he's got two sons that are godless. And I thought about this, I thought, there's so many instances of this in the scriptures, and if we're perfectly honest and painfully, some of us know about that in our own lives and our own families, and it's very difficult. How can this godly man, now Eli, well, he was a bit strange, but as far as we know, Samuel was a very godly man. So why is his son so bad? I don't know. God moves in mysterious ways, and I don't know. One thing did occur to me, and this is just a little thought, all right? Um, and if you, you can disagree with me if you, if you like, uh, and we won't press you too far. Samuel was always on the go. We hear from scriptures, we know he's here, there, and everywhere. And I just wonder how much of an influence he had at home. Now, I go carefully here, I go very carefully. But sometimes, sometimes, we were fathers have neglected our children. Right? Sometimes we worked away. I worked away for several years, um, and I always felt guilty about that. And we, we're not, we don't give the children, our children the, the necessarily care and concern and so forth that they need. Now, I'm just throwing that in as a little, little reminder to us who are parents, grandparents, we need to be more concerned about our children. Okay, well, whatever the reason, all right, they're a bad lot. So the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and come to Samuel and say, listen, you are old. Well, thanks for that. I know it, all right? Well, I'm just going to remind you, you are old, all right? You are old, and your sons don't walk in your ways. Everybody knew it. It wasn't done in the corner. They all knew what the sons of Samuel were like. Now, make us a king. 
In other words, these people are saying, listen, you're old, you're past it, past your spare cell by date, off you go, your sons are no good, off they go, so we want you, before you go, to give us a king, a leader, a protector, a provider. That of itself is not wrong. That of itself is, as is the desire to have a leader, a protector, somebody to look after us, that's not wrong. The sad thing was, is that they went to the wrong, they were, how can I put this, the motive was wrong and they were going in the wrong direction. Because, as we see later, Samuel, Samuel goes to God and God says, they haven't rejected you, they rejected me. It's me they should look to. It's me to whom they should go for deliverance and protection and everything else. It's to me they should come. So they've not rejected you, they've rejected me. So that's the problem. It's not that they shouldn't want someone to lead and guide. They go into the wrong place. And the other sad thing is this, the motive for their going, to have a king, that we might be like all the other nations. What a big problem that is. Bear it in mind who these people are. These are the covenant people of God. Here are people that God has chosen for himself, not because they were special, but because he loved them. That's in Deuteronomy. I didn't choose you because you're good and you're big and all this. No, you were small and you were insignificant. But I, of my sovereign decree and will, decided I would have you to be my people and you were to be distinct and different from all the rest. And it's so noticeable in Scripture when God says, I'm going to bring you out, you know, and I'm going to take you into this promised land and you're to be different. You are to be different from all the people around earth. They're pagans. They're idolatrous. They're immoral. All the terrible things they do and say. You are not to be like them. You are to be different, distinct, particular, and peculiar because you are my people. Now, you need to grasp that because it's such an important principle in the Old Testament and in the New. I think one of the biggest problems with modern evangelicalism is worldliness. We are worldly. Now, I'm not talking about anybody else now. Let's talk about us and me. We are worldly in comparison with our spiritual, godly forefathers. We're worldly. Now, you can define that in all kinds of ways, and I won't go through that at the moment. But it's a big problem. Big problem. Is there anything different about us to the world outside? Well, we come to church, all right? What happens tomorrow? What happens to Monday and Tuesday and through the week? Are you different to your ungodly neighbors? Is there a difference about you? in the way you behave, in the way, and the things you do, and the things you don't do. Is there a difference? Can they notice that difference? Do they see that difference? They, they may not like it, uh, they may not understand it, but say, there's something about him or her. He's different. They may taunt us, they may laugh at us, they may scorn us, but there must be a difference. Now, back in the day, it was a big thing, wasn't it, with preachers, you know, they talked about come out of the world and be separated from them and all the rest of it. 
There must be a diff difference and a distance between the world and us. And slowly over the years, it's almost getting closer. There was a time when people said, how far can I be away from the world, right, and still be useful in the kingdom? You're not going to join a monastery or go up into a little cave on top of the hill, right? How far away? I can't be too far. But it seems it's reversed now. How close can I get to the world without actually being in the world? The Lord Jesus said, you are in the world, but you're not of the world. So, they say this to Samuel, and Samuel comes before God. And this, this is good, isn't it? Um, uh, verse 10, and Samuel told the words of the Lord unto the people and asked him a king. Right? So he, well, I'm sorry, before that, verse 6, and Samuel prayed unto the Lord. Samuel brings it to God in prayer. That's a good place to start. You've got problems and difficulties and trials and tribulations. Seek God. Seek him. Tell him, Lord, what's going on here? Why am I having this problem? I, I, seek the Lord. And that's what he does. He seeks the ear of God. And the Lord, strange this is in some ways, he says, listen to him. It's okay. Listen to him. They've not rejected you. They rejected me. And then verse 8. The Lord has a long memory, you know. And verse 8 says, According to all the works which they have done uh, since the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day. Now this is years, hundreds of years after the leaving of Egypt and through the Red Sea and then across Venture Jordan and into the Promised Land. The Lord is saying, you know, I had a problem with these people from day one. I had a problem with these people since I brought them out of Egypt. They were unburdened and bondage and have a terrible time. And I bring them out. You think they'd be saying, Lord, wow, praise your name. Hallelujah, you've been honored your word and your covenant uh, to Abraham and, other, and the others. And, and now you brought them out. Wow, we will be yours forever. We'll never go astray. We'll never go after idols. We'll never mourn and groan and grumble. We'll be a perfect people. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they're not. How quickly, how quickly they forget. How quickly they forget they're in bondage. Oh, they say, as they wander in the wilderness because of the rebellion. Oh, oh do you remember the good old days? You know, the good old days, oh, it was wonderful in Egypt. No, it wasn't. Oh, remember, wonderful days, you know, there was garlic and, and curry and fish and chips and all. It was wonderful days. And they're all gone. And they all say, Karen, I brought you a bondage out of an iron furnace, and I've kept you, and I've blessed you. And as soon as you're out, oh, says someone, well, that's just them. We're not like that. Huh? Huh? You are not like that? I'm not like that? Listen to Robert Robertson. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart or take and seal it. Seal it from my coat above. Whilst we're in this body, there'll be a tendency to go astray. 
God by his spirit can restrain. Sometimes God says, well, you go there. You do that. And you will learn, perhaps, a lesson. There's a, there's a, there's a, and how sad that is. It's not as if we're leaving a God who is unfaithful. It's not as if we're leaving a wandering away from a God who, who doesn't look after us very well. Here's this great God of wonders who has blessed us so much, so often. And that's the way we treat him. So, in a sense, God says, right, let, let them have what they want. Now, in Deuteronomy, chapter 17, I think it is, um, God gives instructions for a king. Now, the plan was that God would be their king and so on. But knowing human nature, God kindly gives provisions. If you have a king or want a king, then this king should be this, 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 and this. Interestingly, um, one of the things about the king is he should meditate in the the law of the Lord, day and night. Interesting. Brother Gary often emphasizes that to us and look in the Psalms. We need to meditate upon God's word. Well, that was a stipulation in Deuteronomy that the king should meditate on the word of God. I see the contrast here. He's not going to be a big, mighty, military, wonderful person. Yes. One of the things he had to do was to meditate on the word of God and then, med- and then obviously dispense justice and all that according to the word of God. And then God says, well, all right, we, we can, they can have a king, but you tell the people what he'll be like. And then you notice, all right, when Samuel says, okay, all right, um, verse 10, and Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people and they asked for the king, and he said, this will be the manner of the king that will reign over you. And I don't know if you noticed as I read it, the little word, take, Take. He will take your sons and appoint them. He will take your daughters. He will take this. He will take that. Take your fields. All this taking. This king of yours, he'll be on the take. Literally. Now, gain the contrast. You want a king who will take from you, and you're rejecting a God who gives. You see that? This God gives. The greatness, one of the great aspects of our God, he's a, he's a God who gives. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave himself for us. He gave, gave, gave. God is a giving God. Thank God he is. He's a God that showers his people with blessings and gifts. That's the God of the Bible. One of my favorite verses in, in Romans is where, where Paul talks about um, God spared not his only son. All right? Uh, I'll read it. I can find it very quickly. Here we are. In chapter 8, he, he, he says this. He, well, verse 31. Who, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not then with him freely give us all things? 
Here's a God who gives us his son, his only begotten son, to be our savior. And with him gives us all things, all things that are necessary, all things that will bless us, all things that will bring us nearer to God, all things that will make us more useful in the kingdom. God will give us all this. Because he is able so to do, and because he wants to. I'm sure you've all got memories of childhood Christmases. You can remember back that far, all right? Um, back in the day. Now, I don't know what it was like in your household. I guess it was similar to mine, except that my dad, as you know, was at TV, so he wasn't working. So there weren't, it wasn't a room full of presents. There might be one or two or some little stocking. Remember stockings? Uh, apple and orange, a colouring book, um, chocolates. You, you remember well, some of you will remember all that now. Yeah. So my dad built me a fort. He made a fort, a little wooden fort. But he did buy a couple of little lead soldiers or whatever, and I loved that fort. Now he wanted to give me more, but he couldn't because he had no very few little resources. But not our God, not our Heavenly Father. He has all the resources. He gives us all that we need. And if we feel that we've, we're hard done by, I, su I suggest the problem is with us, not with God. He wants to bless us so much. He wants to give and give and give again. But we are reluctant. We are reluctant to come and ask, to humble ourselves and say, Lord, have mercy. But I'm so desperate. Come before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. We need more and more grace. Well, let's move from Samuel to the New Testament. And I mentioned last uh, Sunday, um, Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2, and the word king comes, I think it was about six times, if I remember, uh, about six times where the king, the king, the king Herod, the king of the Jews, uh, this one who's born to be king. The Lord Jesus Christ is God's king. And we need him to be our king personally. We need him to reign over us day by day by day. And we have to submit to his kingship. And that's the big problem. You know the phrase from the New Testament, uh, those who are opposition to the Lord, they said, we will not have this man to rule over us. We don't want Jesus. And the terrible irony of it, when Pilate says, shall, do you want uh, this king? I'll give him, you, 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 shall I let him go? Shall I, shall I have Barabbas to die? No, 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 we, 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 don't, we, we, we want Barabbas, who's a terrorist, but we don't want this, this Jesus to be set free, but, but he's your king. And listen to this, we have no king but Caesar. The tragic, horrendous, 
hypocrisy of that statement. They hated Caesar. They hated Rome. They hated all they were doing to him. They were reigning over him by power, by armies. And they hated them. And yet, when they've got the option of having Jesus of Nazareth or Caesar, oh, no, you, we will worship Caesar. He's our king. We want that Jesus out of the way. Kiss him. How sad is that? The world desperately needs the Lord Jesus Christ. This is going to sound strange, perhaps, but I'm not a great fan of Christmas. <gasps> and I tell you why. Over the years, I've increasingly seen the absolute hypocrisy of Christmas. There are people who, this week and today and tomorrow who have no thought whatsoever about the Lord Jesus Christ, but they love Christmas. Oh, it's a lovely time. Baby Jesus. Oh, it's, we are the hypocrites, right? Common thing, oh, you Christians, I'm not going to go to that church, you're full of hypocrites. Ah, you say this one. And some of it is true. We are hypocrites. But how hypocritical is this? For a man, for a woman who has no thought of Jesus for 364 days a year, leap year, another day, and have no thought for Jesus, but one day, oh, he's wonderful. Baby Bethlehem. Come a week's time, they'll be back to their own ways. It's not Christmas they enjoy, it's what's the festive season, getting family and friends and going to parties and all this kind of stuff. They don't want Jesus to reign over them. We will not have this man to reign over us. And what they don't realize is that saying no to Jesus, saying, no, thank you, I'm not into that kind of religion. But what they're saying is, I'm happy to reign over myself. I'm happy to do my own thing. I'm a self-made person. I do not need Jesus. Yes, you do. And the very rejection of him is idolatry. You say, how do you work that out? Well, it's a worship of self, isn't it? I don't need Jesus because I'm good enough. I don't need Jesus because I'm sufficient. I don't need Jesus or religion because he's only a prop to keep you up. I'm perfectly happy to keep myself up. I'm a self-made man, self-made woman, and I don't need your Jesus. Oh, yes, you do. You're an idolater of the highest order. And one day, this King Jesus will judge you accordingly. And then what will he do? We need the Lord Jesus to be our King. We need to submit him. We need to say, Lord Jesus, I want you to reign and rule in my heart and my life. Otherwise, Christmas is in vain. Ah, says someone, oh, I love Jesus in the manger. But you love him on the cross. Oh, don't talk about that. That's not nice. Well, yes, it's not nice. Because the cross has to do with your sin and my sin and the wrath of God towards that sin. God hates sin. God is angry with the wicked every day. 
And strangely enough, right at the beginning of the gospel, right in the middle of the narrative of Jesus, we have the angel saying to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for he shall save his people from their sin. That's what Christmas is about. You can't get away from that. That's why he came. Why did he come? Oh, to make us feel a little tingly and happy and uh, have a bit of peace here and there. No, he came to reconcile sinners to God. He came to make not peace men with men, but peace men with God, God with man. That's why he came. The gospel is there in, in the birth of Jesus. We're nearly finished. We need to start thinking seriously about these things as believers. We are given in to the world in their practices on Christmas. You see, if these folk were seriously minded, they would say, I don't believe that Jesus right, is the saviour or all that kind of stuff. If they were true to their beliefs, they wouldn't celebrate Christmas. Are they? Said, I'm not going to celebrate an occasion, a, fe a festive, whatever, based on some myth or some old story. I mean, because I don't believe it. Therefore, I'm not going to celebrate it. Well, that would be honest, at least, wouldn't it? I'll be honest. I may have told this little story previously. When we were up in Stanmore, our church was on the main road going from Wembley up to Watford. Big May very busy road because the M1 was nearby and obviously. And right at the top of the road was a um, traffic lights. Busy, busy junction here, there and everywhere. A lot of traffic up. Um, well, commercial buses, cars, everything. And on the side was a, an advertising big board. A very good spot, you know, because people would come up and they'd stop the lights and be able to read what's in the board. And one year, I forget the actual ad, but it was I think it was a BT advert, something to do with British Telecom. And they'd used the word Christmas to advertise something for BT. And they'd manipulated it. So it didn't actually say Christmas. I'm not sure if they left the T out or something, but there was something they did. And I thought, you know, that's blasphemous. So don't tell anybody I did this. I got my ladder, I went up to the road and defaced it. I put the tea back and underneath I wrote, put Christ back into Christmas. I confessed to the church, I'd done it. I said, no, I, if you, somebody finds out I did it and say, but it's nothing to do with me, it's, it's the pastor, you blame him. So I don't want you to be involved, but I'm telling you what I've done. My man said, Pastor, if I had known, I'd have held the ladder for you. But it's that kind of thing. You see it in adverts. You see it all over the place. They're diminishing our Jesus. They're diminishing his birth. They don't want the truth of the Bible, the truth of the nativity. They want everything else but that because they don't want this king to rule the world. They want to be like everybody else. We need to be challenging ourselves. We need to challenge this old world. We 
be to seek to live more like subjects of the great king. Do you belong to King Jesus? Are you in his kingdom? Have you trusted him as your savior? May the Lord help you and bless you at this time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the account we read in Samuel, a search for a king, wanting someone to reign over them. And alas, alas, it would not work. Sadly, the priesthood failed, the prophets failed, the kings failed, all certainly pointing forward to one who would be a priest, who would be a prophet, would be a king, who would not fail even King Jesus. We thank you for him. We thank you for this little babe resting on his mother, so dependent upon her, absolutely dependent and in earthly sense upon his natural mother. And yet he's the Lord of glory. He's the King of kings. He's the one who created the world. He's the one who will judge the world. He was the one who would bring this whole world to an end. Oh, Father, for Jesus' sake, for the honor of your Son, have mercy upon us here. Grant that we might live as better citizens of the kingdom of God. Have mercy upon our families and our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues at work, whatever. Oh, Father, for the sake of your Son, have mercy in this godless Christ-rejecting generation. Have mercy in wrath. Remember mercy. And bless us, we pray, for Jesus' sake.